University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. If you have your Bibles with you, take a look at the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 19, verse 45. One thing that has been challenging about this crisis we're facing as citizens of this world, whether you are directly affected by the coronavirus or not physically, is that it has disrupted our normal. It's disrupted the normal way of going about our our work, of our normal daily routines, of our eating, our exercising, our our community, our friendships, our hobbies, our entertainment, our shopping, our, our way of doing church together. Even just this morning, disruption of my normal Sunday morning routine with the news that this great work that we've put into making it possible for all of our spiritual formation and small groups, uh, Sunday school classes to meet together was all all of a sudden disrupted because of a system change within Zoom. Frustrated by the disruption of our normal, of, of our normal comings and goings. And at the same time, this crisis has maybe put into perspective what really is important in our normals. Are there things about the way that we're used to doing and having it that this break from normal maybe, maybe shows us it's not as important as we thought it was? I think this crisis should cause us to maybe rethink what is normal within our lives. Today we celebrate Palm Sunday, and I believe Palm Sunday is the paramount of Jesus calling into question what is normal. See, most of us, when we have a perspective of the travel entry uh, on Palm Sunday, we have this serene image of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of this beautiful donkey adorned in bleach white robes with bleach white teeth with a perfectly trimmed beard with hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, celebrating and rejoicing him coming into the city. But what we fail to see through our picturesque image of the the triumphal entry is the downright insurrectionist overtones that galvanize this moment. Jesus doesn't come into Jerusalem as a peaceful and quiet Messiah. This is a very, very bold act of resistance. Jesus is rebelling against the religious system that was full of corruption, sharing a bed with the overbearing power of Rome. Jesus comes into the city on the riding of the back of a donkey with fanfare all around him. This is the triumphal entry of a king. A triumphal entry was an act of insurrection by this king. And we're going to take it a little bit deeper in order to understand it. What we need to understand is the context that Jesus is coming into. He's coming into a very symbolic week for the Hebrew people, Passover. It was the biggest of all the celebrations. And its root stretches back to the story of the exodus, of slavery in Egypt. God promised the people that if they painted their door frames with the blood of a lamb, that the, the angel of the Lord would pass over while taking the firstborn of the Egyptians. The Hebrew children were saved while the Egyptian children were not. And Passover was a lively affair. The population of Jerusalem would have quadrupled as Jews poured into the city for a spiritual pilgrimage for a time of festivals and a time of celebrations. The streets and alleys would have been packed with people. People would have been flooding into the temple. And that's exactly where Jesus heads in his triumphal entry. 
Now, another quick biblical lesson. The the temple was a a vital part of the religious practices of the ancient Hebrew people. The temple was the center of their life and the practice of their faith. The temple was the place that they obediently traveled through to to not only have celebrations and festivals, but to bring an offering and a sacrifice to God. People from all over the world of, of Jewish faith would have come to this magnificent structure, the epicenter of their faith, Now, the temple that that Solomon built was destroyed, and it was rebuilt by Herod. That was later ruined in 70 AD by the Romans. What stands today is the ruins of that temple. And it's Passover, and thousands of people are there in the temple. The board has been set, and the pieces are moving. Jesus moves into the temple in verse 45. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Now let's be careful not to criminalize the actual business of the temple. The animal sellers, the money exchangers were actually authorized by the law to provide this service to the people. The problem was not their service. The problem was the way they were running their business. So take, for example, a good Jewish man would come, he would present his lamb uh, as an offering. But he might be told by a temple official that his lamb has a blemish, and if he truly loved God, then he would swap out this lamb buying a pure lamb. And then they would turn around and take this man's lamb, and they would tell it, sell it to somebody else claiming it was perfect. Or let's say you came into the temple with Roman currency. Well, the temple cannot accept the image of the Roman king and God as a tithe to the Hebrew God. And so you would have to exchange your money from Roman currency to Hebrew currency with the supreme upcharge. And we don't have enough time to get into the fact that the temple system itself alienated people based on their gender and their nationality and their sexuality and their economic value and their religious purity. People were literally siphoned off to sinners and outcast sections of the temple The message is, you're not worthy to truly come in here. And to the religious leaders and to the temple rulers, this was their normal. To the people who were worshiping, blindly being robbed by all of this, this was their normal. Jesus was stepping forward into a classic racketeering scheme. And how do you think he's going to respond? He's already been traveling the countryside, gaining a reputation as a troublemaker, ruffling the feathers of the religious sinners and their leaders. He's been breaking all the rules, empowering the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the unclean, by telling them that God loves them equally. And let's not paint an innocent brush over this passage. Jesus was angry. The practice of the temple had become distorted beyond recognition, so much so that Jesus sought to purify the temple by ridding it of its malice and corrupt element. Jesus wanted to destroy the commerce itself. And not for the first time, but for the thousandth time, God chose justice over worship. I hear the echoes of the ancient prophet Isaiah when he said, I've had enough of your sacrifices, of your festivals, of your acts of worship They're empty and meaningless without sincerity. Wash and make yourself clean. Stop doing wrong. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the orphan and the widow. You see, Jesus is putting on the attributes of the prophets who had come before him. Jesus puts the proverbial stick of dynamite in the middle of their religious and societal and political corruption, and then he lights a match. 
Jesus' response to all of this was to overturn their normal. And if Jesus were to walk into our modern day temples today, what normal would he overturn? And before we consider the mechanisms of our communities and in the world, the church has to look at itself. And I'm not referring to uh, the church as in uppercase C, as in University Baptist Church, but instead as the universal church. I wonder how Jesus would deal with the normal way we treat certain people. Of course, I mean the the pleasant way we treat people who look like us, who go along with the rules that we have created while excluding those who don't fit into our system of who's in and who's out. Too many churches have alienated people based on their gender and their nationality and their sexuality and their economic value and their so-called religious purity. I wonder how Jesus would deal with the normal way that we blindly go about things the way we've always done because, well, in doing the same old, same old, it doesn't really require any faith for us at all to do anything. I wonder how Jesus would deal with the way the churches willingly enables bullies and control freaks to take over the local churches that isolate and threaten and dominate and rule those who are supposed to be part of the body of Christ. What false facade are churches setting up today that need to come down? What systems of manipulation need to be overturned? What spiritual racketeering schemes need to be scattered? I wonder if if Jesus were to physically step into many local churches today, what would he overturn? You see, Palm Sunday is is not just seeping with religious overtones. It's seeping with socio-political discourse. So we cannot help but wonder how Jesus would deal with our normal socio-political entrenchment and divisiveness today. As one author put it, in moving from inclusive table fellowship to action against the temple, Jesus shifted from the controversial but acceptable practice of eating with others across diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, confronting the institutional system that created and entrenched unequal and unjust socioeconomic boundaries in the first place. You see, how, do, how would Jesus deal with our normal blind loyalty to, to contentious news outlets that tell us what we want to hear, rooting us deeper into political loyalties, energizing us to alienate and fear and, and hate those that are different from us? So Jesus is echoing the words of the prophet, speaking on behalf of God of the injustices towards the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan, how would Jesus deal with the raging debates we deal with today? What would Jesus say about our divisiveness? What would Jesus say about our system to set up people to deal with failure, to be taken advantage of? What normal would Jesus overturn today? And we live in such an angry time. People are so angry about politics and faith and economy and global climate and environment and and on and on, just Flip on the TV, scroll through your social media feed, just, just go out on a limb and try to start a hot topic issue with a friend or a family member or someone at work, and you see just how angry we are. And so often we think that our anger is just like Jesus' anger, that we are righteous in our politics and religious perspectives. But what we don't see Jesus doing is things in often the way that we do it. Jesus isn't going to a a gay pride parade and screaming that God hates you. Jesus isn't arguing that his political status and religious status are being taken away in this country. Jesus isn't filling the the, the online blogs with all sorts of 
hate-filled fear-mongering. Instead, what Jesus is displaying in the Gospels is anger towards the self-righteous religious system. So maybe we need to be careful in thinking that our anger is righteous. Maybe we need to turn to Jesus to learn what righteous anger looks like. We learn from Jesus that anger is not the first thing we turn to. We are reminded from the Gospels that Jesus says, You have heard it said to people long ago, you should not murder, or anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. James reminds us that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So maybe be careful in thinking that our anger is righteous. Maybe be first to be gracious. Sometimes in our anger-filled judgment and condemnation of others, may we turn to God for the answers of what we need to say and do. Let's cap off the story here in verse 47. It says, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So what do we do with someone who threatens our way of life, our comfort, our power? What, what do we do to someone who threatens our normal? Well, the answer to, to Jesus was to kill him. Luke tells us that the religious leaders begin to plot on how they were going to kill him. And maybe even Jesus' actions in this moment shook the very foundation of his disciples because we learn that in, in a matter of hours and days, that Judas Iscariot chooses to turn Jesus over, to betray him. We know that when he's falsely accused and arrested, the disciples flee in fear. Peter, the rock that God would build God's church, would deny that he even knows Jesus. The Jewish system of politics and faith, they threatened Jesus. They spat upon him. They beat him. They punched him. They demanded that he be crucified. This is what we do to people who threaten our way of life, our worldview, our, our normal. We silence them. We, we control them. We maybe even kill them. As Dr. King put it, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral. Begetting the very thing that it seeks to destroy, instead diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Though violence, you may murder the liar, you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder the hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. And so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness at a night already devoid of stars. I'm an early morning runner, and I'd rather not deal with the heat of the afternoon, and so I like the crisp air of the morning. But in the last couple of weeks, uh, running early in the morning in my neighborhood has been somewhat of, of an obstacle course, if you will. You see, people, as they're staying at home, they're finding they, they're getting rid of stuff they don't want, including items that they can't donate to Goodwill right now. They're just sticking it out on the road, covering the sidewalks. And so the problem is, as you're trying to walk or run, you have to go around it. Now it's a minor inconvenience. But nevertheless, we get rid of the unnecessary stuff somehow. And yet we have a time to reflect. Sometimes the stuff we thought we needed to live normally all of a sudden isn't that much of a necessity. You see, Jesus was cleaning out the temple. Jesus was putting the trash out by the curb. Jesus was trying to remove the unnecessary normal out of their lives. 
And beyond the righteous anger, beyond the corruption of the injustice of the temple, Jesus is doing something far greater. Jesus is letting the people know that God desires to do something more. The practice of of bringing and buying sacrifices, the religious habit of coming to the temple for forgiveness of sins, is about to be ancient news because on Friday, Jesus will make it irrelevant by what happens to him. Jesus is overturning their normal for something better. And Luke reports, he, when he cleans out the house, he sits down to teach the people about the kingdom of God. In the face of their corruption, Jesus offers them a better way of thinking and living. See, I think Jesus desires to, to overturn our normal for something better. Jesus desires to step into the temple of our lives to turn over the things that are already leading us to brokenness and darkness. Out of his love for us, he's inviting us into something new. Dr. King goes on to say, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Jesus' act is not a motivation of hate, but a motivation of love for all of humanity. And the way of Jesus is not this religious rules and regulations like we see here in the temple. Instead, Jesus is inviting us into a new way of thinking and living, into a new mindset, into a new character, and it's such a radical way of living that we cannot simply pick up one thing or two things and try to live them out, but instead it's an inclusiveness of our entire life into the way of Jesus. Jesus is inviting people to discover that, that there is honesty in the face of systematic lies. That grace is better than judgment and guilt. That kindness instead of hatred and isolation. That peace and unity instead of divisiveness and alienation. Love instead of seeking normal that hurts our neighbors. Jesus' invitation is to rethink our way of thinking and living. Jesus desires to overturn our normal for something better. But do we believe that Jesus knows what's best for us? Do we have faith that what seems so normal needs to change in our lives? And are we willing to let him? But I don't think Jesus stops with just bettering our lives. He wants to see through us how the world's normal is affecting other people. And we could take the next five hours debating the injustices that we see all around us, let alone the country we live in, let alone the entire world, But maybe some of these facts will help us to see that the world's normal is not okay. 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. There are 72 million children in developing countries that will never receive education, never learn how to better their lives, never given the opportunity to break the cycle of poverty. Less than 1% of what the world spends on weapons is needed to put every child into school. Let's zoom into the state we live. I've only lived here for for two years, but no matter where I live, the place that I live matters. The people and how they're affected around me matters. Do you know that we don't have to go far before we realize that people very close to us are facing hardship and setbacks and frustration and broken systems and the spiral of downward immobility? Our state ranks 48th in education, 49th economically, 50th in upward mobility, 45th in healthcare, 43rd in financial stability, and 50th in environmental devastation. 
These are not issues for politicians to deal with. These are issues for us as members of the citizens of kingdom of God, as followers of Jesus, to consider how the hardship and struggles of others affects their lives. You see, believing in these things that is that we must believe that God is concerned, that the church should be concerned, that we should be concerned about the way that people are broken and facing hardship based on the world's normal. Every day we encounter people who believe that building up their little kingdoms of wealth and bigger houses and nicer cars and more stuff will make them more satisfied and secure. Our, our communities are full of people who are seeking fulfillment and belonging in anything and everything they can find it. Just around the block from you are people who you may not realize are trying to fill the void of their life of depression and despair and, and broken heartedness with substances and life choices that will never fill them up. These people are our neighbors, our co-workers, strangers at the supermarkets, waiters, baristas, college students, professors, people across town that we have no idea what they look like, government officials, and maybe even people in our families. Our world's normal affects people no matter their race or their gender or their sexuality or their social status or their political affiliation or their station in life or their level of religiosity or worth to us. And I think the ultimate invitation of Palm Sunday is to join Jesus as co-table overturners of the world's normal. You see, the work of loving our neighbor and inviting people to follow Jesus, it's tough work. It's not short-term, easy solutions, but long-term and ongoing work. It's the day-to-day, day-in, day-out, never looking past the opportunity to love others to speak truth in their life, and to seek truth in our world. It is the really tough work of seeing what systems are suppressing our neighbors, because you know that God cares just amount of, about people's well-being as God cares about our religious systems. As great mother Teresa put it, love cannot remain by itself. It has no meaning. Love has to be put into action and action in service. This Palm Sunday, may we rethink what's normal. Maybe we step out in faith to follow Jesus into something better. May we join him as co-table overturners, bringing new life into this world.